Good evening, dummies. Episode 133. Wonderful to have you here. Exciting news right off the bat. 115. No, that's not right. That's not right. 115 degrees today in Virginia. No, that's not right. 115 people got COVID. Nope. 115 million fake votes were finalized by Donald Trump. No. It's not 115 anything. It's 115 goals the Colorado Avalanche have scored in the last 10 games, although it might seem so. No, not true as well. It's actually 15,000. I apologize. I got a little ahead of myself. So this could just be a preemptive countdown for when I have 115,000 followers. So let's do that. Folks, ladies and gentlemen, 115,000 followers on Don't Unfriend Me sometime next year. Actually, it's not that at all. It's a 15,000 followers, but that's still a great number for six months. This really kind of little shindig started on election night. So so to see 15,000 viewers so quickly and better part of half a year is pretty good. If I can get to 30, I would be ecstatic and honored. Thank you for the shares, follows, likes, all of that helps. Every time you like something, your feed gets to see it. And that's another opportunity for someone else to like it. Every time you share it, the same thing. So please do that. And I'll talk about that throughout the show. But tonight, what are we talking about? Well, the Avalanche are playing tonight. I figured I'd tell you. Astros are off. They're five and one, leading the MLB, which is good. Colorado Avalanche are also the number one team in hockey. They're ahead of Florida Panthers, who we beat. Interesting for our first Stanley Cup in 1995-96. Wouldn't that be awesome to see them again? I will do what I have done all year and not talk trash about any teams. Tonight we play the Minnesota Wild, and that is so hard for me because I don't like the Wild. But I'm not going to curse. A winning streak. A winning streak that is just amazing. Points in the last 16 games. Anyway, folks, you didn't come here for this. Every night I talk about sports, and you're just going to have to deal with that intro. What are we talking about tonight? What's important right now? It's not sports. Israel and Biden. Really, Donald Trump took the Israel and America relationship and went 180. It's not 360. A lot of people think 360. Well, if you do a 360, it's exactly the same place you ended up. It's a 180. However, because Joe Biden was a part of the Obama presidency and they're treating Israel exactly the same, I guess it would be a 360 going back to where they started. But from Donald Trump's perspective, it's really a 180. It doesn't really matter. The Olympics. China is threatening. Enjoy the Olympics or else. Should be fun. We walked it back because we're spineless. And China, like the NBA and like everyone else, that sucks on the teat of China to get the proverbial milk. We can certainly not upset our mom and our daddies, which are China. Democrats love the Chinese, just as everyone accused the Republicans of loving Russia. Joe Biden stood firm for a second and then ultimately buckled like a belt or a bad hip. Either one works. After that, we're going to talk about liberal mistakes. 2014 and 16, I called some things out about Republicans on Facebook. Came up today in my my notes and reminders. And I said, I should do the same thing for liberals. I tend to be hard on Democrats, but I want to give the secret of success of why half of America basically gave the proverbial finger to the Democrats. We'll talk about that tonight. First, we always do a joke to enter the show, and, and today is no exception. I want to tell you a little bit about some stories from the Olympics. And the Olympics have a vast lineage of stories, inspirational, some tragic, some sad. This is the most tragic Olympic story. And it starts like this. A gymnast walks into a bar. 
Recorded from an undisclosed location. Always honest. Always direct. So sit back. Relax. Don't unfriend me starts right now. I want to thank my wife, Olivia, for that amazing introduction. Thank you, honey. You sound great. You sound so consistent every single night. It's almost like it's on recording. Folks, who am I? Matthew Spear with Don't Unfriend Me. I am your host. I will walk you through this show. It's the same guy every night. There's nothing new, nothing exciting. It's the same guy who talks about current events, politics, sports, whatever tickles my pickle and Lancey's my fancy. That sounds painful. I have to come up with another word that rhymes with fancy. It doesn't matter. It's not important. Folks, here are all my handles. You can find me here if you want to follow me after that terrible, terrible pun and joke. It's just not good at all. Lancy, my fancy. Oof. Boxy, my Roxy. I don't have anything else. Someone send me a good idea of how I can rhyme something with fancy, and I will give you a brand new Maserati. Allegedly, if you watched watched last night's show, I'm in the clear by saying that. You can follow me over here. You can do that. Also, if you look in the little corner right here, you'll see a little red little red envelope. Click on that. That's on YouTube, and you'll be able to subscribe. And also, you can like, follow, and share on Facebook, Instagram, uh, podcast, whatever, whatever, whatever. Please do so. It helps and saves puppies all over the world. As God will rescue a puppy if you give me a like, follow, share, and subscribe. With no further ado, let's get into it tonight. We have wasted enough time on Dribble Drabble. There's a good one. Dribble Drabble. <sighs> Lancy, my fancy. I'm, I, I'm not going to let it go. I can't. This week in the long tradition of Joe Biden being part of administrations that leaked sensitive information about Israel, the Biden administration leaked to the New York Times that Israel had attacked Iran's ship, the Saviz, in the Red Sea. This isn't the first time. Joe Biden has inadvertently made gas before about SEAL teams and about operations that have happened, Delta Force, et cetera, et cetera. And the man can't keep a secret. Benjamin Franklin said it best. Three can keep a secret if two are dead. In this case, three can keep a secret if three are dead when it comes to Joe Biden. Not that I'm threatening the president. For the Secret Service that just came on, everything's fine. It was just a little joke. Not as good as Fancy My Lancy, but still pretty good. Amache Stein of the Israeli Public Broadcasting Corporation, Khan, tweeted, U.S. official tells the New York Times Israel informed the U.S. it attacked Iran's ship, the Saviz, in the Red Sea in retaliation for earlier strikes on Israeli vessels and added the ship was damaged under the waterline. Israeli Ambassador Michael Oren said in 2010, while Biden was vice president under Obama, Israelis' ties with the United States are in their worst crisis since 1975, a crisis of historic proportions. In October 2012, Danny Dannon, Danny Dannon, Lancy Fancy, no, he's not related to any yogurt producers, chairman of Likud's international outreach branch, said that the Obama administration's policies had been catastrophic. In 2020, John Perazzo delineated how often the Obama-Biden administration had leaked information about Israel between 2010 and 2015. In 2010, the Obiden, the Obiden, 
It's going to be a rough night. Let's keep sticking with that. The O'Biden administration, eager to protect Iran, leaked information about a secret deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia, in which the Sauds agreed to let Israel use their airspace in the event of an attack on Iran's nuclear facilities. On March 22nd, 2012, the Obama the O'Biden administration leaked to the New York Times the results of a classified war game. Institute for National Security Studies analyst Yoel Guzanski said of the leak, it seems like a big campaign to prevent Israel from attacking. I think the O'Biden administration is really worried Jerusalem will attack and attack soon. They're trying hard to prevent it in so many ways. Israel defense commentator Ron Ben Yeshay Rishai wrote in May 2012 that the leaks would make it more difficult for Israeli decision makers to order the IDF, which is the Israeli Defense Forces, to carry out a strike. And what's even graver would erode the IDF's capacity to launch such a strike with minimal casualties. Surprise is always the best outcome whenever you are attacking. In April 2012, The New Yorker reported that the O'Biden administration leaked information that the Israeli Mossad was funding and training the Iranian opposition group, the Mujahideen, or the MEK. Perazzo noted this revelation was intended to portray Israel as being unwilling to negotiate in good faith with the government in Tehran and to thereby undermine any moral authority that Israel might claim in the event of a future military strike against Iran. Perazzo continued, in early May 2013, two O'Biden administration officials, I really like that, leaked classified information to the media indicating that Israel was behind a May 3rd airstrike against a shipment of advanced surface-to-surface missiles and at the airport in Damascus, Syria. Israeli security analysts said that the leak could not only endanger any Israeli agents who were still on the ground in Syria, but could also increase the likelihood that Syrian President Bashar Assad would retaliate against the Jewish state. Again, the purpose of the leak was to paint Israel as an unnecessarily aggressive, bellicose nation. In November 2013, the Obama-Biden administration officially leaked to CNN that a Syrian base in Latakia, which held Russian-made mobile missile systems that could have given to the terrorist group Hezbollah, had been attacked by Israel warplanes. Perazzo pointed out Israeli officials called the leak scandalous and unthinkable. In January 2015, the O'Biden administration leaked information alleging that an anonymous Mossad official had opposed sanctions on Iran. Within hours, the official the Mossad's Tamir Pardo responded, contrary to what has been reported, the head of the Mossad did not say that he opposes imposing additional sanctions on Iran regarding the reported reference to throwing a grenade. The head of the Mossad did not use this expression regarding the imposition of sanctions, which he believed to be the sticks necessary for reaching a good deal with Iran. He used the expression as a metaphor to describe the possibility of creating a temporary crisis in the negotiations, at the end of which talks would resume under improved conditions. In 1982, Biden, then a senator, banged the desk in front of him with his fist at a Senate Foreign Relations Committee, SRFC, meeting to warn Israeli Prime Minister Menachem to begin and to stop establishing new Jewish settlements in Judea and Samaria. 
Begin famously responded, don't threaten us with cutting off your aid. It will not work. I am not a Jew with trembling knees. I am proud. I am a Jew with 3,700 years of civilized history. Nobody came to our aid when we were dying in the gas chambers and ovens. Nobody came to our aid when we were striving to create our country. We paid for it. We died for it. We will stand by our principles. We will defend them. And when necessary, we will die for them again, with or without your aid. This desk is designed for writing, not for fists. Don't threaten us with slashing aid. Do you think that because the U.S. lends us money and is entitled to impose on us what we must do? We are grateful for the assistance we have received, but we are not to be threatened. I am a proud Jew. 3,000 years of culture are behind me, and you will not frighten me with threats. Take note, we do not want a single soldier of yours to die for us. There are a lot of people who think that Israel is the lesser of two evils, but an evil nonetheless. And I will tell you this, I have worked with Israeli soldiers and intel officers and played rugby with Israeli uh, civilians. And I will tell you that they are a proud and a good people. And they are the best friends we have over there who ask very little of us except to show unity shoulder to shoulder. Saudi Arabia wants our money. They want us to buy their oil. They want us to have all the luxury cars that we have in the United States or the hot women and the blondes and the brunettes over in Saudi Arabia. They also want to go ahead and take down towers, which most of the actual terrorists who were on the planes did and were from Saudi Arabia. They are best friends in that area. And honestly, if I had to choose one country, it would be Israel because they are crazy and they have no problem wiping out their entire civilization to prove a point. And that's what it takes. Crazy needs to beat crazy. It's actually a contradiction. Fire doesn't beat fire. Water doesn't beat water. In this case, crazy beats crazy because Israel is batshit crazy. And they will use a nuke if they feel it'll gain them any respect from those other states that are trying to impede their will on them for thousands of years. It comes down to this. Joe Biden can't have his cake and eat it too. He cannot support Iran and defend Israel at the same time. He has to make a choice. But as all Democrats do, they always fall on the side of everyone but Israel. They have a stigma about Israel. They don't believe Israel is right. They believe that New World Order Having 16 Middle Eastern countries is better than having just one. And that's what the Democrats have always thought. That's what world conquerors think. That's what a new world order is all about. The more countries that enter under the banner, the more control we have. And Israel will never play by those rules. This hasn't changed 1982. It hasn't changed in the 800s. It never will. Israel will never allow a collar around their neck. No matter how much we give, no matter how many ruples, no matter how many exotic cars or blondes or brunettes, they will never falter. They will never waver. And the nice thing about that is that it also holds true for their loyalty. Joe Biden and President Obama has done more to destroy relations with Israel than Germany. And if you think I'm crazy, they may not have killed that many people, but they have set us back from advancing in the Middle East and obtaining peace in the Middle East by playing grab ass with other terrorist countries. Donald Trump made more progress in the Middle East in less than four years than every single president combined in world history. That should tell you something because he unequivocally backed up Israel. He recognized that Palestine did not have a right. He recognized that Jerusalem was indeed Israel's. He supported Benjamin Netanyahu and he absolutely supported Israel with funding and podium backing. 
Fortunately, Joe Biden isn't doing the same thing. He wants China's favor. He wants Iran's favor. And those are the sides that they have chosen. And it is a grave, grave mistake. Speaking of China, Chinese government warned Washington on Wednesday not to boycott next year's Winter Olympics in Beijing after the Biden administration said it was talking with allies about a joint approach to complaints of human rights abuses. Let me be clear. They said they were talking about boycotting. A foreign minister spokesperson rejected accusations of abuses against ethnic minorities in Xinjiang region. He warned of an unspecified, robust Chinese response to a potential Olympic boycott. Quote, the politicization of sports will damage the spirit of the Olympic Charter and the interest of athletes from all countries, said the spokesperson Zhao Jing. Further quote, the international community, including the U.S. Olympic Committee, will not accept it. I love when they speak for the world. Human rights groups are protesting China's hosting of the Games due to start in February 2022. They have urged a boycott or other measures to call attention to accusations of Chinese abusers against the Uyghurs, Tibetans, and residents of Hong Kong. The U.S. State Department suggested an Olympic boycott was among the possibilities, but a senior official said later, a boycott has not been discussed. Do you remember when Donald Trump would say something and then the press secretary, no matter who it would be, whether it be McInerney or or Sarah Saunders, or anybody else, uh, Priebus or whoever the other guy was. I mean, there were plenty of them. I think he had Sean Spicer as one, too. I mean, everybody got a shot at press secretary. But the point is, is they would say, oh, they're not communicating. One says one, one says the other. It looks like this epidemic is something in the White House water and not just each administration exclusively. The International Olympic Committee and the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee have said in the past they oppose boycotts. White House Press Secretary Zinsaki said Wednesday that the White House is not looking at a boycott of the 2022 Olympics. We have, no, I, I don't even need to read this, but I guarantee you it's going to be a circle answer. I'll have to circle back with you, or it will be a non-answer. We have not discussed and are not discussing. Didn't you just say the same thing twice? Any joint boycott with allies and partners, she said, when asked if the U.S. government would discourage Americans from traveling to China, sucky, said the Biden administration hopes that by the time of the event, we are at a point where enough people across the country and hopefully around the world have been vaccinated against COVID-19. She didn't answer the question. She never answers the question. You are the press secretary. It's like the person in the charge of the Department of Transportation says, Sir, do you believe that buses are, are, are a fair mode of transportation? He says, well, I'm not sure, but dandelions are fantastic in the summer, especially if you eat them from stem to stock. What? What does that have to do with transportation? Jelly beans. I don't understand what you're telling me. Aardvarks. It's the most arbitrary conversation I've ever heard in my life. There is no line of transparent and, and, and original thought that comes out of this lady's head. She's giving dumb blondes a bad name. She's actually making everyone focus on gingers. Everyone always worried about gingers anyway. I always have. She really takes the cake. I will give the follower on Facebook. I don't know your name, but I put up the post of her and it says lying Jen, blah, 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 uh, little uh, lying, little red lying hood, I think is what it says. And, and there's a picture of Jen Saki, who looks quite pretty in the picture. And the guy says, I'd still smash her. 
totally inappropriate and sexist, but good for you, sir. You win the internet for the day. I laughed, uh, belly laughter, R-O-T-F-L-L-M-A-O, Rafflecopter. Imagine for a moment that you found out that the Olympic Games were going to be hosted in your city. Would you be excited, annoyed, indifferent? Most people think that hosting the Olympics is a huge honor. And for the most part, they're right, I guess. But there are several considerations that few citizens take into account when they think about the prospect of hosting the Olympics or any other large-scale event. When it comes to making a list of pros and cons for potentially becoming an Olympic host city, the negatives may outweigh the benefits. Here are some of the reasons why South Korea might regret agreeing to host the 2018 or the 2020 coming up in China or Rio or any of the other countries might regret their decision, especially for the Winter Olympics. The cost of hosting mega events is mind-boggling. Saying hosting the Olympics is expensive is kind of like saying water is wet. The estimated cost to host cities has skyrocketed in the past 20 years. The 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney had an estimated cost of $4.7 billion. It's no small amount by any stretch. In 2008, Beijing spent a staggering $42 billion can't believe they paid their slaves. It can be hard to pinpoint the total cost of hosting, however. Cities such as Beijing, London, and Rio built in legacy planning when they made their Olympic strategies, essentially assuring that the investment would pay off after the Olympic crowds left town. Spending more up front wasn't entirely necessary, but it helped to justify the cost over time. Some examples of legacy planning include better transportation systems, job creation, economic stimulation, and urban renewal, and regeneration. But even that's not enough to make an Olympic bid qualify as a sound investment. The 2004 Olympics in Greece left the country with 7 billion euros worth of debt, which mainly attribute as a major cause of the country's eventual economic crisis. That and civil war. Well, and also CIA-funded wars in the 1950s and 60s, and then leaving them completely stranded against the Russian and the Afghan push, but we're not going to go into that. Number two, it's difficult to complete, recon, completely reconfigure urban space. Think about the city you live in. Even if it's grown over time, planning efforts have probably been gradual over many years. Hosting the Olympics or some other large-scale event would ramp up that timeline significantly. For one thing, cities need to cater to the parameters set forth by the International Olympic Committee, the IOC. The entire city would need to be changed into recreational environments that sets up for retail, sports, leisure, and lodging. It's a costly and confusing undertaking that takes an enormous amount of planning. Hosting the Summer Olympics requires a city to provide space for three Hundred events spanning 30 sports in 17 days, lodging for 11,000 athletes, 5,000 coaches, 42,000 hotel rooms for Olympics officials and corporate sponsors, a staff of 300,000 contractors and volunteers, a 20-acre broadcast center with enough electricity to light up to 10,000 homes, and a force compromised of 20,000 military police and other security personnel, along with a partridge in a pear tree. What happens after the event leaves town? Well, inevitably, the crowds will leave. And after the event comes to an end, that's what they get. And it leaves cities with a very big question. Now what? 
Take the example of Cape Town's massive 600 million, 55,000 seat Greenpoint Stadium that was built in anticipation of the 2010 World Cup. Since that time, an additional 32 million has been sunk into the upkeep costs. Funds which would have been better spent on more important local issues, such as providing sanitation and housing for the poor residents of the city. Brazil's $550 million World Cup stadium, that's a really, really expensive parking lot now. It's all just proof that spending all that money on new stadiums and other infrastructure usually won't pay off in the end. Not to speak of the cleanup that has to happen, because ultimately, the world is a bunch of slobs. Hosting the Olympics could result in human rights violations, especially in China. Here's something you may not have considered. Building new infrastructure in cities would and could affect the poor and homelessness of the community. Before the 2008 Beijing Games, an estimated 1.5 million people were forcibly removed from their homes and were given very little compensation. Entire neighborhoods were demolished to make way for new mega buildings, made especially for Olympic events. Displacement is only one potential human rights violation that happens during mega events like the Olympics. There were LGBT rights concerns during Sochi 2014 Winter Olympics, as well as casualties on the construction sites of the Qatar 2022 World Cup. While the Olympics stand as a symbol of world peace and unity, the reality behind the scenes is often the opposite of that. There could be huge security concerns. People had security concerns in Rio. Odd Anderson, AFP, um, imagine, excuse me, posted an article that asked, imagine half a million strangers descending upon your town. That's essentially what you're signing up for when you make a bid to host the Olympics. Besides the obvious threat of terrorist attacks at any large-scale event, there are also other security concerns that stem from being the host city. Muggins, murder, muggings, <laughs> muggins, muggins. Oh, Harry Potter, it's a blooming muggin. What the fuck's a muggin? <sighs> There's muggles. A muggin. It's a it's a it's a blueberry muggin. It's it's got a little wrapper. It's got some crumbles on the top. You put a little bit of butter on there, and you have it in a teacup. No, you don't put it in a teacup. Where do you put it? You put it in a mug. That's right. It's a muffin in a mug. It's a muggins. What the fuggins am I talking about? Muggings, murder, and other criminal activities increase surrounding large events. Even with tens of thousands of additional security personnel, muggings still happen. Ah. And security fencing, fen fencing, oh boy, I'm just mucking the pucker. I'm, I'm lancing my fancy. Just another part of the huge cost to the city. There is no way to completely curtail crime during the Olympics. Hosting the Olympics is basically a crapshoot. It's unlikely for the Olympics to be profitable for a city, but, but it's possible. The trouble is that the decision to host is a huge gamble. The city of Boston wasn't willing to take that risk. When they won the right to bid on the 2024 Summer Olympics instead of Los Angeles, protesters were so fervently against it that Boston's mayor decided they didn't even want the bid a few months later. The city of Los Angeles, who did manage to host profitable Olympic events in 32 and 84, made their bid despite risk because it's California. They don't care about spending people's money. Number seven, most cities don't even want to host the Olympics anymore. More cities are starting to see the Olympics as a headache. Some cities see hosting the Olympics as a way to boost tourism and gain international prestige, but most are starting to realize that hosting is actually just a billion-dollar headache. And that's why the IOC is having a hard time finding cities who are willing to host the Olympics at all. 
when Beijing was chosen for 2022 Winter Games, the only other option was Almaty, Kazakhstan. Doesn't that sound fun? The other potential, while we're there, we might as well invade and take over the country. The other potential bidders, including Oslo, Krakow, Stockholm, St. Mortiz, Viv, and Ukraine, had all previously backed out, even though the 2024 Summer Games were awarded to Paris over Los Angeles. L.A. will get to host the 2028 Games because literally no one else wants to. I love the Olympics. I've said it before, but I will be honest with you. With the politics that are now entering and with the ultimate strain it puts on the economies of destroying countries like Greece, which was a beautiful country, it's not worth it. It literally is a nationalist dream. It's a bunch of flag waving. And ultimately, there are three to four countries that compete. In the Winter Olympics, it's really Russia, if they actually get to play because they dope and do steroids. It comes down to some Swedish and Finnish countries and Norway countries. It comes down to the United States. And maybe Japan might creep in there a little bit. Oh, and Canada can win some hockey. Eh? But when you go to summer, it's really Australia. It's the United States. Brazil gets in there a little bit, wins a couple. Um, Russia, if they haven't done steroids and doping. And that's about it. It really comes down to the Jamaican bobsled team. Never won again and never will. And you don't get these amazing stories. Yes, there are a few. But now it seems like it's like uh, America's got talent. These Olympic athletes get up there and they go, my name's Bobby Joe Reedy. And I come from Oklahoma. And I decided that I was going to ride horses. And then my mama died. And I didn't know what to do. Every effing story is like that. And you're just sitting there and they play this sad freaking music in the background. And you're just like, geez, I want to hang myself with the Olympic medal. But they're all like America's Got Talent. Everyone's got a sad story. There's nobody happy. There's no happy Olympic athlete. Everybody has went through hell. I just want to see the one person go, you know what, man? I smoked three packs a day. I uh, sat in front of the computer and played video games to train for this. And, uh, well, that's Sean White pretty much, right? I smoked some, smoked some dope, man. Ate some Doritos, bro. And I'm, like, going totally tubular. And, like, I can do, like, a, a 1970, man. It's freaking awesome. That's Sean White. And you got to respect him. But all these other people, you know, just, uh, I had to carry buckets of water. These buckets were 150 gallons a piece to fill my ice rink every day. Then my mom died. It's like, geez, dude, I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to hear that the curling team works out really hard. They don't. It's a curling team. It's like saying that you actually practice darts. It's ridiculous. There are some people who are extraordinary athletes. The people who do floor tumbling, who who do the parallel bars, amazing. Peekaboo Street and uh, Brody Miller, who go down at like 175 miles an hour down the super g on two whatever they are they're not even skis they're just like tiny little toothpicks and they make turns that are incredible and and literally if they fall the half of their face will look like two-faced from batman terrifying that takes talent and all of those things are challenging but can we really be honest the stories of jesse owens the stories of, of some of the greatest swimmers in history, the Michael Phelpses, some of these things will never be broken. 
And honestly, it is so mass marketed now. Everything, every five seconds is a commercial. NBC shoves this down our throats. And before we even get to watch it, they don't even put a lid on this anymore. They tell us, we hear it on the radio, we hear it on the TV, we hear it on the news channels. Oh, America won gold. Thanks, there goes my evening. The 800 individual free medley, Michael Phelps won eight medals today. And you're just like, you know what? You can't even let me enjoy it. It's not even going to be aired for another eight hours. The whole point is this. It's turned into a mega commercial. And now introducing the politics of having them have BLM on their shirts and take a knee. It's too much. I've had enough. I think we could do with a break from the Olympics. Let's get our sports in the United States back to normal. Let's slap some basketball people around. Let's go ahead and fire some people in the NFL. Let's model our sports after hockey, which is relatively drama-free in every facet of the word. When everyone wanted to take a knee, what did they do? They literally had the league get together on the ice and have a conversation. And the representative captains of each team said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put money back into the the neighborhoods. We're going to build ice rinks. We're going to help minorities understand the game of hockey. And we're going to take a portion of our salaries and reinvest in the communities. That's it. Shut up. We're done. Let's go play hockey. But everyone else, let's take a knee for prosperity and integrity. Let's do it every single game. Let's go ahead and dwindle our ratings down and lower and water down our product and make it about an issue that not everyone really cares about. Let's be honest. Most black people don't even care. They just want to watch football. White people want to watch football. We don't want to be preached to, but this is what it's become. It used to be a symbol of national pride, Lake Placid, going up against the Russian hymnists. All of that garnished or garnered pride for Americans. And now it just doesn't mean as much. And it all started when we allowed the NBA dream team into the Olympics It just didn't seem fun as it used to. We'll see. I could be wrong, but I have a feeling these next two games will be the lowest in TV ratings history. NBC has successfully done that every four years, no matter which brand of Olympic summer or winter, they have just slowly went into the toilet. I don't think that will change for these two sets of Olympics. Democrats ask... I went off on a tirade there, folks. I don't even know what I said. I blacked out for a minute. I stroked out. I'm going to look at the recording. We'll see if it was funny. If not, just bear with me. I just am very opinionated when it comes to the Olympics, and I'm sick of politics in my sports. Sorry. Democrats ask why millions of Americans repudiated their party in favor of repugnant and divisive Donald Trump, so they say. Could the answer be an equally divisive Democratic Party? Columnist Jonas Goldberg makes the point alternating between parties that want to unify a vast and diverse country under one best way is a recipe for perpetual strife. The Democratic Party would do well to listen. The far right wing requires eradication and progressive reform requires broad support. But the path to that end is not through the left's short short sighted alienation of moderate and conservative voters. Claiming the moral imperative, historically one side defining good for its own purposes and assigning evil to the opposition has led to social violence. The inflexible right makes might of Dems minimizes opportunity for compromise. Ignoring the Constitution, when Trump won, leftists rampaged the streets, randomly destroying innocent citizens' property. 
Democrats began impeachment immediately. And I want the Democrats to answer these. I want you to just say something, defend any of this, because this is as straight up true as it gets. This is a very honest account of what the Democrats have been doing, just like I was honest in 2004 and 16 with the Tea Party movement and the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant representatives of the Republican Party. They touted eliminating the Electoral College and packing the Supreme Court and said it. If leftists resort to violence whenever unhappy with electoral results and if the Democratic Party alters time-worn American institutions to guarantee its own political supremacy, citizens who respect peace and democracy will resist. Being divisive, elitist, and hypocritical, the right didn't elect Donald Trump. The left did. Hillary Clinton called millions of voters deplorables. Democrats everywhere cheered her statement. Conservatives were callously called Trumpies or Trumpets. Some were intimidated in the workplace, even fired. Moderates perceived such leftist tactics, tactics as threatening and humiliating, humiliating and arrogant towards those with differing viewpoints, leaving them resentful of the party and its agenda. Being partisan in the press, did CNN dedicate it the same coverage to the Obama administration's treatment of families at the Mexican border that it did to the Trump administration for the same behaviors? The scope of challenges to questionable policies shouldn't be determined by political party. Many don't seek the news for political preferences of editors and columnists. We desire nonpartisan analysis of events. Single perspective news outlets limit the perspective of citizens and foster intolerant outlooks. Lumping conservatives in with supremacist right wingers, as some Dems have suggested, is anyone who supports Donald Trump they're a racist. Are black people who support him traitors? Are women who voted for him insensitive to rape and sexism? If Republican voters can be generically demonized, then so much for the freedom of citizens to decide which party they favor. <clears throat> can one not detest Donald Trump but fear the liberal agenda more? Generalizing racist and other discriminatory intent over political preferences only decreases the opportunity for collaboration. Importing voters, humane treatment at the border and making refugee homelands less violent must happen. Can America economically or culturally sustain millions of impoverished immigrants? The Democratic Party failure to sponsor reasonable immigration reform fuels perceptions that the left wants uncontrolled immigration to offset the loss of voters disillusioned with its agenda, which is happening at a rapid clip. More than ever before, liberals are leaving the party, especially when they get older, because they realize I've got something of my own and I don't want to give it up anymore. Americans fear how much factions in the Democratic Party might change America. Policy in your own ranks. Cease throwing divisionary blame on the other side. Accept partial responsibility for the divisiveness in the country. Admit the failures of urban Democratic administrations to meaningfully elevate the impoverished in their cities. Acknowledge corruption in Democratic-led cities. Practicing democracy, the intolerance of the left to opposing thought smacks tyrannical. Single-party dominance in democracy never coexist. Single parties always fracture, except in totalitarian states. Mr. Trump failed to separate himself from the incorrigible, violent, rightists, frightening, and alienating many moderates, which he did. And you can say he did it, but he did. And I think he got advice not to. 
And I think he got the bad advice, which is why he fired half of his cabinet in the remaining days. And I said it all along. I think we had a horrible Secretary of Defense, and I think he got bad advice from his political strategists, including Giuliani. Will the Democratic Party separate itself from incorrigible violent leftist change agents? How many voters turned away from the party because of that element? Respecting national institutions, except that progressive reform can occur without extremism. Disavow violence and destruction, whoever commits it. Work with the constitutional process rather than dismantle the electoral, judicial, and senatorial institutions to guarantee the electability of Democrats and the success of party initiatives and not the people. Donald Trump will never be gone. If the Democrats are smart, he will not return in four years. With their excuse for gridlock governing a race, the Democratic Party should appeal to the broad base of Americans. Restricting opinions the party will entertain won't accomplish that. Moderate invitational dialogue might. Preachings and practices attributed to the Democrats by the right may be apocryphal. Liberal behaviors must serve to dispatch those perceptions in moderates, not reinforce them. Millions did not vote Democratic, despite a severe distaste for Donald Trump, because the Democratic Party's public behavior has been too frequently been violent, divisive, hypocritical, and threatening. Mediate and bring us back, or don't, and revitalize the right. I have been difficult and hard on both sides. I really have. I gave Donald Trump a lot of credit. I think he had the best three and a half years of any president who's ever served. Truly believe that. And he literally had the worst last six months of any presidency, of any president up until maybe Nixon or Carter. I don't blame Democrats. But here's my problem. Do people really think that the Republican Party is racist. Is that what they really think? Do Democrats truly believe that? Because I don't think they do. I think the Democrats are just as upset with their party as Republicans are with ours. I think we're frustrated with Republicans. I think we're frustrated that we had a president that they could have done more with, that they should have backed because that's what we wanted. But the corporate shills in the swamp wanted to do what they wanted to do. And that's more liberal thinking than conservative. We have to get to a place of understanding is that if you decide to watch one news or the other, your opinions are going to align with that station, no matter what you do. You can say you're unbiased, but there are no such things as middle anymore. Everyone's taken a side. I try to represent both sides, but I will be honest, 90% of the time I fall into the Republican category. But what I don't do is admonish and ridicule liberals who have a different opinion than me. I admonish socialists and leftists because that is not America. That's communism. And that's progressive socialism. And it has no place in a democracy, just like the alt-right fascist movement has no right in our democracy as well. We've got to get to a place of maybe not healing and acceptance, but we need to learn to communicate again. We need to learn to ask more questions and maybe not always have all the answers. I don't know the secret. I don't know if we'll ever get back to where we were, but I promise you this. If we don't disconnect from the TV, 
if we don't stop reading one side of a story, we will always have only a portion of the truth. Because the thing about Democrats and Republicans is they both hold truth and they both hold lies. There's no such thing as moderate anymore. Maybe there never was. But if we are going to reach it, it starts with questions. It starts with conversation. It starts with trying to find our commonalities and not necessarily focusing on our differences. Liberals, you have a chance. You lambasted Donald Trump in his first two years that he had the Senate and the House and he did nothing with it. We're almost 90 days in and you haven't passed one piece of legislation that's bipartisan. You literally have stuffed executive orders down the throats of Americans and you look like a totalitarian government. Where is your outrage? Tomorrow, Joe Biden will pass executive orders to ban certain ghost guns that are used for hobbies where people can make their own weapons. They were told that ARs were the devil and we couldn't buy them from the manufacturer. So we started buying parts and making our own. Now that's not good enough. So they're going to start banning that. And they will go after whatever they can to appease the lust and the slake for lust by Democrats to outlaw guns and weapons in the United States, which will never work. Where is your outrage? Is this what you voted for? A totalitarian government with no checks and balances, unfettered access to decide whatever he wants for the American people, no matter how much the American people are against it. And if that is true, what happens when this puppet of a man who is not a liberal, who is not a Democrat no longer, he is a progressive, which represents about 20% of the Democratic Party, will you stand up and protest? Will you do what the moderates did against Donald Trump and vote against him? For the love of us all, I hope you do. Because I will tell you, Joe Biden is not the answer. And as much as you think Donald Trump wasn't, I promise you, you will miss what he did for this country someday because the socialist part of the party is coming and they are growing every single day because the ignorance of liberals to not quelch it and quash it out of their party is absolutely contagious with youth today. Folks, thank you for stopping by. Thank you for listening. Long show tonight. It's been a while since I've done that. I hope you have a wonderful day. And also, if you could do me a quick favor, which is stop by my website at donutfriendly.com. Give me a like, share, follow, subscribe, all of that type of stuff. I would greatly appreciate it. And lastly, Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255-PRESS-1. Traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress, very, very serious. Please reach out to a veteran. 22 a day commit suicide is way too many. They need your help. Make that phone call. If you can't, go to my website, click on the VCL link, and you'll be connected to a Skype operator who will take care of you. And if you are a citizen... And you are not a veteran. The Veteran Crisis Hotline won't turn you away. They will help you as well. Folks, do me a favor. Like, share, and subscribe right here. I will see you tomorrow for 134. Thank you for everything. Thank you for the 15,000 follows. Be honest with each other. You might have been offended tonight. Maybe you weren't. Maybe you agree. Maybe you disagree. Just remember, don't unfriend me. I'll see you tomorrow.